to Totalus Rankium. This week, Dwight Eisenhower. Part 2! Welcome to American Presidents Totalus Rankium. I am Jamie. And I'm Rob, ranking all of the presidents from Washington to Biden. And this is episode 34.2. It is the second part of Dwight Eisenhower. The man himself, the supreme allied commander and operation overlord. Uh, yeah, yes. Him. That That's him, that's him. Um, yeah. yeah. Impressed with him so far? Yeah, he seems to know what he's doing. Uh, yeah, yeah. He won a war. So... I beat that. Yeah, that that that, that helps. That's good. That's good. Right. Okay. Well, let, let's not waffle. Let's let's just dive straight in, shall we? Yeah. Uh, let's we have an introduction. Let's have something we've never had before. So we'll go for like modern things that are impossible. Let's go for a space shuttle. A space shuttle. Yes. Okay. The very first one is called Enterprise. Is that just Star Trek? No, it's generally called Enterprise. It's like a Jamie. It's like, Jamie, it's like, you can't, you can't fool me. That's just Star Trek. I'm not falling <laughs> for it. So no. Yeah, no. it is a captain by I think his name was Kirk. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay no, no, we're we're, we're start. I, I'm going to take take what you're saying. I'm going to twist it slightly. Start on a starry sky. Can the space should at least go past? Yeah, the, the Star Trek ship goes past it's being chased by a blue whale for some reason um <laughs> but yeah nice. uh, that's that's just in the distance uh, there's a, a one of the stars seems to be flashing however just flashing away that's odd stars don't usually flash no no you think and so does several other people at the same time um and then this flashing light gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you see hurtling towards you at a shocking speed it's none other than what looks like a very early satellite <gasps> and Sputnik. it goes it goes flying by like at tremendous speed the camera's all shaky and there's some good sound effects yeah. going on it's good good foley work and uh as it just <laughs> shoots by you at tremendous speed you see that on the side of it's just like a little disposable camera like gaffer tape to the side of it pointing downwards <laughs> and uh it's it's rapidly taking photos and then, as as it shoots past you, the it, the wind that it like just blows the camera, which obviously wouldn't happen in space. But these, no, of course not. The, people didn't know better in the fifties. You could get away with stuff like that. Explosions yeah. sounded like they were loud in space back yeah. in those days. So anyway, uh, the satellite pushes past you, and the wind catches the we call it solar wind. That sounds sciencey. Uh, catches <laughs> the the camera, and it flings around, and it, it points downwards, and you realise that you are directly over the country known as France. <gasps> Bonjour. Yeah. That's what and, they say. It means hello. And then just start plummeting towards the ground really, really quickly. Like you're zooming towards the ground from space. You're getting uh, closer. Uh, you are, uh, I don't like heights. I don't like this. You're zooming into Google Maps. That's uh, what you're doing. Yeah, Until that scares me. finally you go into a city and then into a street and then into a building and then into a room because this is one of these open ceilinged uh, buildings that they've got in France. Uh, yeah. We all know of them. Very continental. Um, yeah, very continental. Uh, or maybe it's got a skylight. That perhaps is better. And then you realise that uh, there is a piece of paper on a desk and it's zoomed right into it and it is just typed on this piece of paper. Lots of French words because you're in France. But it also has the word Eisenhower Part 2 typed on it. Ooh, nice. 
That was that quite is, spectacular. It's quite cinematic. It's very cinematic, isn't it? What's going on? Why Why is there a Russian satellite taking Kodak images of uh, France? Of your research notes from your holiday in France, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, there we go. That's how we're opening this episode. Because we're entering the space age, Jamie. How exciting. We are. How, Star Trek age. How exciting. I mean, we, we've done this podcast for a very long time now. As in, we've this... covered a long uh, period of history. Yeah. We're now in space. Yeah, that's quite cool. So I think yeah. our very first episode, didn't you go back millions of years? So. No, yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's quite quite the spread. <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay, right. Um, let's let's get into Eisenhower, shall we? Because uh, the war's won. Hooray, sort of. I mean, not the whole war, but the, the European victory has, yeah. has been achieved. Uh, he is the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe, so he has reason to celebrate. Uh, and he's also, remember, got K by his side. Oh, K. Yeah. yeah, so the world's good. Everything's good. Yeah, looking positive. Everything's looking up, you could say. Yes, but obviously things are about to change for Ike Eisenhower. Uh, because with the war in Europe over, he needs to decide what his life is going to look like. What's he going to do? I would love to be president, he thought to himself. No, he did not. No, okay. Well, definitely not. No, he he figured he'd got two choices. He either goes home to Mamie, and remember, he'd not long ago visited Mamie, and wow, that was awkward. Yeah, yeah, it was. That was where he kept calling her Kay. Um, In bed. Oh. Yeah. Or, here's, here's an idea that was being floated around by several people, some of his friends. Why don't you move to London and uh, live with Kay? Ooh, I like that idea, he said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the decision was playing on Eisenhower's mind as he and Kay went to London to celebrate VE Day, which must have been fun. Yeah, that would have been yeah. pretty awesome. All the, uh, all the rationed food for the parties. Yeah. Here's your water biscuit, sir. <laughs> have to sort of push past all the rubble. Yeah. To, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. Move Granny's corpse out of the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good time had by all. Yeah, like I say, quite a few of his uh, friends around this time were suggesting to him that he move to London. In fact, some of them had even selected a residence for him to, to live in. This was a, a serious consideration. Wow. Uh, in fact, in the end, he made up his mind. This was what he was going to do. His future was in Britain. So he wrote to Marshall. Remember, Marshall is the... The plan guy. Um, yes, but in the future, Marshall at this point is the uh, chief of staff of the army, so he's uh, head, head honcho in the army. Uh, so he writes to Marshall and says, can I please be relieved of duty now that uh, the war's over, over here? Yeah, I've, I'm going to stay in Europe. I'm going to divorce Mamie and marry Kay. So he waits, and eventually he receives a letter from Marshall, and I, I'm paraphrasing here, to be fair, uh, said something like, Don't be bloody stupid, you idiot. If you do that, I will kick you out of the army, and I will make your life utterly miserable. Okay. <laughs> yes, this seemed to snap Ike back to reality. It's like, yes, he was very much in love with Kay, but he did have a life back at home, mm. and it was time to face up to that. So he spent a while celebrating in Europe, uh, staying in Germany mostly, and then getting involved in the discussions with the Russians over who exactly was where now the war was over. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of soldiers in places where they agreed there wouldn't be, and lots of manoeuvring had to be done. Yeah. 
Now, all the while, uh, Kay was by his side throughout all of this, but their days were numbered, <gasps> and they both knew it. Did she get shot? Did she step on a mine? No, no, nothing that drastic. <laughs> Thinking Eisenhower arranged for her to have a little accident. Oh, well, maybe not Eisenhower, maybe Marshall. I don't know. Oh, maybe. No, mm. no, nothing nothing that dramatic. They just knew right. that it was going to be over at some point. But there's still things going on. For example, the Potsdam uh, conference with the Big Four took place. Yeah. Ike, during this conference, learned that some of the clever boffins in the lab back, back at home had come up with a uh, rather large bomb. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they were going to use it on the Japanese. Splendid! Well, Ike apparently was appalled by this. Good. <laughs> I will uh, quote here. I voiced my misgivings. First, on the basis that my belief that Japan was already defeated and that dropping the bomb was completely unnecessary. And secondly, because I thought that our country should avoid shocking world opinion. I disliked seeing the United States take the lead into introducing into war something as horrible and destructive. It's interesting, because, I mean, war is often a place for very fast technological growth but yeah this is, this is the first time where people are kind of going oh maybe it's a bit too much like with tanks armored horses that was fine oh i mean eisenhower's we saw last episode yeah. loved the idea of tanks loved the idea loved of modernizing tanks. yeah definitely yeah. uh but like you say this was a step too far for him but as we've also seen pretty much everyone else was very happy to use the bomb and gave very little thought to it. It would appear Eisenhower was one of the few at this time going, hang on, <laughs> do we do we need to do this? Could we just demonstrate it in the open ocean just to show what we could do? Yeah, um, so, yeah, he, he was he was ignored. Um, uh. <laughs> yeah, shut up, Eisenhower, you're ruining the war. <laughs> As covered uh, in Truman's episode, the bomb was indeed used mm. twice. Eisenhower was not impressed, fearing that this would lead to much, much worse things. He stated that he thought that with Britain's navy, the US's air force, and Russia's land army, those three nations could theoretically maintain a world peace for a very long time. Because you've got three powerful nations in different ways, and they can keep an eye on each other, but no, I think everything's going to be fine. Hmm. But now the bomb's been introduced, I'll quote here, I don't know. People are frightened and disturbed all over. Everyone feels insecure again. It's uh, this idea that maybe that wasn't a good idea. Maybe this is setting a precedent that we shouldn't be setting. Still, Eisenhower gets on with his job, obviously. There's still lots to do, just because the uh, the war's over in Europe doesn't mean he can sit with his feet up. Uh, yeah. So he gets on with it. He visits Russia. He made several close contacts with those high up in Russia, understandably, because he was working with the Russians during the war. Uh, and he was treated like a returning hero in Russia. He was the only foreign person to stand atop Lenin's tomb. Literally? Yeah, yeah. On the, on the, on the big glass tank? Yeah, yeah, yeah. American flag in hand, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I'd like to think. No, no, he was, like, up up on the, the, the standing area that you can stand. They, oh, they thank goodness. stood there for five hours, apparently, watching a, a huge display of uh, gymnastics and various other things to celebrate from victory. Uh, probably not from Lenin, uh, yeah. but uh, he, he was stood next to Stalin for five hours. You, you, oh. you, you'd get bored, wouldn't you? You would. You'd run out of things to say. Yeah, well. you would. Uh, he then saw many parades afterwards. He watched a football game. He generally had uh, a good time. He came away from Russia feeling cautiously optimistic. I mean, 
he was certainly no fool, he knew that most likely there were going to be tensions between the countries from yeah. now on. Uh, it was obvious that was the way things were going, but it wasn't too late, he thought. It's like, that. these people, you can talk to them. We're not necessarily on the path for war here. Yeah. The next day, he told a reporter, I see nothing in the future that would prevent Russia and the United States from being the closest possible friends. Ah. Uh... Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. Around this time, he got a he got a phone call. It's time to come back to Washington, Eisenhower. Uh, you have been named as Marshall's replacement as chief of staff. Ooh. Yeah, how nice. So, get all your people together and come on home. And uh, Eisenhower did. He got everyone who worked under him together, and uh, everyone got on a plane, apart from one person. Oh, Kay. Yes. Yeah, Kay stays behind. Ike wrote a very formal letter to, to Kay on War Department stationery, which is always... It's, it's the personal touch that just makes it sense. It is, yeah. I am sure you understand that I am personally much distressed that an association that has been so valuable to me has been terminated in this particular fashion, but it is by reasons over which I have no control. Association? He called it a bloody association? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's only part of the letter. It, it goes on like that for a little bit and then just stops. It is a it is a cold goodbye. Uh, there is a handwritten postscript, apparently, that says, uh, take care of yourself and retain your optimism. <laughs> oh, yeah. words to the heart. <laughs> yes. And uh, that's it, just like that. Kay's gone. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm probably very annoyed she's been left behind. Well, I mean, left behind in the country she lives in. It's, yeah. Oh, that's a fair point, yeah. yeah. I've yeah. got a, she's a taxi driver, wasn't she? Yeah. Or a limp, but yeah, well, driver. She was a driver, yeah. Anyway, back in the United States, almost immediately, people started asking the pressing question. Is Eisenhower a Democrat or a Republican? Hmm. Because he is going to be able to win elections, and it would be great to have him on our side, said pretty much everyone in Washington. <laughs> yeah. However, Ike just refused to be drawn in. I'm positive that no one thinks of me as a politician, he said. Now, as we saw in Truman's episode, uh, Truman was very keen for Ike to be seen as a Democrat, obviously. Uh, yeah. So he made it very clear to Ike that if he needed anything, anything at all, Truman would help. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. One house, I can help. And then apparently there was a bit of a pause, and then Truman said, for good measure, that definitely and specifically includes the presidency in 1948. Just in, <laughs> just in case he'd been a bit too subtle. Just Eisenhower's confused expression of what, what, I, I don't understand. Oh. But like I say, uh, Ike's refusing to be drawn in. Uh, he worked as chief of staff for a while. He did a good enough job. Um, he annoyed the conservative faction of the Republican Party for not being anti-Russia enough at this time. As you can imagine, the anti-communist feeling was really starting to heat up. But apart from annoying the old guard of the Republicans, uh, he just got on with the job smoothly. But the term was soon coming to an end, and um, he started to think what he was going to do next. And it was around this time that a friend approached him. How about being the president of the University of Columbia? <laughs> what? <laughs> Hi, I I'm Eisenhower, Supreme Commander of Allied... Uh, Fine. Why not? How hard can it be, essentially, was the, uh, the response. I mean, he did... He replied that he had no idea how to run a university. I mean, what? No, this just isn't 
my thing. But he was told, oh, don't, don't worry about running the university. We've got people for that. Yeah, the university just wants a big name in the top slot to look yeah. impressive. Uh, there are people who will run the university, don't worry. So after talking it through with Mamie, he decides to go for it. Um, after all, if he could win the largest war in human history, how hard could it be to run a university? Well, yeah, piece of cake. Yeah, he almost immediately regretted his decision. Ah. Yes, as we covered in Wilson's episode, if you remember, the cutthroat world of university politics is not a fun place. <laughs> it really isn't. Um, I mean, Ike was used to issuing orders, and those orders were followed. He was not used to this hot mess of competing interests and factions. So, yeah, it, it was just a bit messy. I mean, he did enjoy the history department, though. That was nice. Because, well, he's part of it now. Well, yeah, I mean, he he was writing his, his own biography at this point, and hmm. he knew his history well. He'd, he'd read up on military history. So, yeah, he got on with people there, but uh, he, something wasn't quite right with the job. It yeah. just He wasn't enjoying it. Um, the election came and went, the 1948 one. This is where Truman got in on his own right, if you remember. And then once that election finished... Almost immediately, people started asking about Ike again in 1952. Is he a Republican or a Democrat? <laughs> because people are going to want to vote for this man. Yeah. Still, he refused to be drawn. No, no, not interested, not interested. Not interested. Where, where are you going? Come back. Keep asking me whether I'm interested. <laughs> and then Truman contacted him and asked for help with a spat between the Navy and the Air Force. But they'd fallen out. Of various oh. issues. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, Eisenhower, can you please come to Washington and just talk to the Navy and the Air Force? Bash they're their stealing our plane designs for their boats. Yeah, things like that. Boats shouldn't have wings. Well, Ike was very eager to go to Washington to help. This was more his wheelhouse. It got him out of the university. So he went off to Washington for a bit, uh, worked there. He started spending more and more time away from Columbia to the point that the university started to get a little bit fed up. We're paying this all this hard-earned money and you're not doing anything. Which, to be fair, was kind of his job. His job was to be the prestigious name. Um, but yeah. I don't know. There were some people on the faculty just thinking he wasn't doing enough. So when... Eisenhower was asked by the president to be the supreme commander of the NATO forces in Europe. NATO? Um, yeah, yeah. The university didn't offer too much protest. Fine, yeah, take an extended lead, leave of absence. Go and do that if you want, whatever. Yeah. So Eisenhower sets off to Europe in January of 1951 to go and have a look at what this NATO thing was about. Mm. It's got a military wing, you say, and that's what I'm running. Right, okay. Um, so where is it? Oh, right, I am it, am I? Right, okay. Um, right, I'm going to pop back to America and see if we can get any funds <laughs> for this then. <laughs> so, after about a month of seeing what was going on in Europe, he came back to America to try and just get a bit more support and funding. Yeah. Unfortunately, Congress at this time were not particularly supportive of the idea of NATO and it using United States troops, uh, especially the old guard of the Republicans, this faction was the faction leading the Red Scare. Uh, this faction wanted America to go back to isolationism. Uh, they did right. not want America to be dealing with wars uh, in other countries. They wanted America Whoops. to... Yeah, they wanted, um, they wanted communism to go away, and they wanted America to just look inward. Right. Uh, so they really were not happy with the idea of uh, NATO. Their leader at this time was Taft. Robert Taft, this is the son of President Taft. 
Yeah. Yeah. The water buffalo riding president. Yes. Taft desperately wanted to be president at some point. He'd already attempted it three times before and obviously had failed each time. But his popularity was arguably stronger than ever. And at this point, he was leading the fight to get the United States to pull out of the NATO's military. So Eisenhower decides to meet with Taft. If you stop all of the crap you're pulling and come out and support NATO, says Eisenhower, I will publicly announce that I won't run for president next election. Oh, (laughs) that's some confidence, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, after all, Taft at this time is the forerunner in the next uh, convention to be nominated. I mean, he's already tried it three times. If he doesn't get it next time, he's got to give up. Yeah. And Taft also knew that there was only one person who could beat him, and that was Eisenhower. Unfortunately, though... Taft did not take this well at all. He hated the idea of NATO. He wanted the United States to retreat back to uh, its isolationist ways of the previous century. Uh, So he just refused and left. Stuck to his guns, to be fair to him. Um, This annoyed Ike quite a lot. And he was left thinking just about how maybe, just maybe he would have to run for president then. (laughs) Still, he had a job to do. Uh, So back to Europe he goes. Right, so, have you got anywhere while I've been away, he asked, to an empty room. In fact, not even an empty room, it was just a field somewhere. Oh. With half a sheep in it. Half? Uh, yeah, it's a tragic Brutal accident. Times. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there was no headquarters, there were no troops, there was no staff. Um, Europe was still a mess, understandably, we're not far yeah. off the end of the war here. So, it's like, okay, right, I've got to get this up and running thinks Eisenhower. So he spends a year touring the continent, securing support for NATO. It was at this time that President Truman announced that the United States would support any country against communism. Ike winced at this. I'll uh, quote here, We should promise support to any country prepared to defend itself. We should not embark on a straight anti-communist campaign around the world. I mean, it's going to put Russia's back up a little bit. It is, and I could foresee this leading to the United States being dragged into various conflicts over the next half century that arguably they could have stayed out of. Yeah. Yeah. Some in, like, Asia. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, yeah, he wasn't best pleased with Truman's foreign policy, but still, he carries on with his job. There's not much he can do about that. Uh, He stayed in France, uh, but on an American base. It wasn't wasn't like being in France. He was... (laughs) He could have been in America. It's yeah. on a military base. I mean, it was close enough to Paris that he got to visit the capital uh, when he wanted to, though. Uh, and when he wasn't building up uh, the NATO the NATO forces from the ground up, he was watching the Republicans closely from afar. One thing that was really disturbing him at this time was the fact that there were rumours that his old boss, MacArthur, was a possible Republican candidate. Now, just to quickly recap here, remember MacArthur is the general who he worked under in the Philippines and he hated. Yeah. MacArthur also, as we covered in Truman's episode, went off the rails a bit uh, in Korea. Yeah. Yeah. Invaded a place he shouldn't have done. And Truman had to fire him. So we're at this stage now. MacArthur's been fired. He's back in America and the old guard Republicans are using him as a trophy. So, yeah. And uh, if there's one thing Eisenhower does not want is to have to work under MacArthur again. And if MacArthur became president, he would have to. So maybe 
maybe I really need to think about becoming president, if nothing else, <laughs> just to stop MacArthur. <laughs> Still, he's playing everything close to his chest. Truman approached him yet again, saying he'd throw his weight behind him if he ran as a Democrat. But eventually, Ike makes up his mind. After over a year of people speculating, he finally announced that if the Republicans asked him to run, then he would. So there you go. He's a Republican. The convention arrives. The old guard were determined for Taft, obviously, to win the nomination. That's, that's who they were going for. And Taft was going to lead a very conservative Republican Party. The liberal faction of the Republicans, because they had one back then, uh, <laughs> were all swinging behind Ike. So the first ballot, Ike gets 595 votes to Taft's 500. This is only nine votes from winning. Wow of how the rules worked at this point. Yeah, it's like insanely close. The third place man, a man named Governor Warren, uh, had 80 votes. <laughs> but he refused to butch. I mean, all the people who voted for Warren were always going to vote for Warren, no matter yeah. what, because Warren's plan was to be the dark horse, the compromise. His plan was to watch Ike and Taft battle it out and then step in at the end. However, because... Ike was so close to winning, with only nine votes left, the fourth and fifth place people had 30 votes between them. At this point, once everyone realised how close it was, but the uh, the uh, roll call hadn't actually been announced, yeah. uh, Minnesota waved for attention, and the presiding officer allowed them to speak before announcing the results. Minnesota said, hang on a sec, we've changed our mind. Yeah. Um, you can have our 19 votes for um, Eisenhower. Yeah, there you go. Eisenhower can have them. Yeah. Uh, so just like that, technically in the first ballot, although only just, uh, Eisenhower wins the nomination. Hooray. That's fast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I say, he was, he was a favourite and had been for quite some time. The people yeah. liked the war hero. Right, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that evening, Ike was asked by his staff who he wanted as his running mate. Ike responded, and I quote, Well, I thought that was up to the convention. I'm guessing at this point there was a surprise silence and lots of meaningful glances. <laughs> uh, oh. Mutters of, oh, of course, of course, and democracy, and yes, yes, definitely. And then someone <laughs> said, but, uh, but seriously, who do you want? Yeah. Uh, Eisenhower mentioned a couple of people, now he thought about it, who would make very good vice presidents. Again, there was an awkward pause. Everyone looked at each other a bit. But no, no, Ike, you... We're not asking for someone who'd make a good vice president. We're asking for you to choose someone from the old guard. Someone young, preferably. Someone from the West. Someone who is the opposite of you to make everyone happy. Uh, someone like uh, Senator Nixon, for example. Nixon? Nixon, yeah. Young oh. senator. Yeah, he'd do. He's young. He's, he's old guard. He's from the West. Mm. Yeah, fine, fine, whatever, came the reply from Eisenhower. So there you go. You have an Eisenhower-Nixon ticket. And the campaign starts. The Democrats have nominated a man named Stevenson, an eloquent speaker, a, a Democrat from the liberal faction, because the Democrats had a very conservative faction as well, as a liberal uh, faction at this time. And the campaign started off smoothly enough. 
But with the age of McCarthyism hotting up, it, the election, as you can imagine, soon started to turn nasty, as in particular the old guard of the GOP started throwing accusations of people being damn commies. Uh, yeah, that's an easy thing to throw around, though, isn't it? Oh, yes, as we will get into in a bit. Yes, yes, it well, was insanely now, easy. Insanely easy to do so. Eisenhower personally spent his time crisscrossing the country campaigning, using his popularity to even target the South with the goal of getting the South to actually vote Republican for the first time. Uh, Everything seemed to be going well, and then the fact that Nixon had a secret fund from an anonymous source leaked to the press. Oh, okay. Yeah, what's this secret fund all about? Where are you getting this money from, Nixon? This seems a little bit dodgy, Nixon. You're not a crook, are you, Nixon? (laughs) The papers jumped on it, or at least the uh, Democratic-leaning papers did. Uh, It just didn't look good that someone was bankrolling the vice president's nominee, and no one really knew who it was. was, Technically, nothing illegal was going on, but it it wasn't a good look. Yeah. Uh, Nixon had a very good argument. In typical old guard style for the time, he said, it's the commies, they're trying to smear me. (laughs) Yeah. Get-out clause, isn't it, now? Yeah, this just elevated the story. It stopped being a, oh, had you heard Nixon's got a bit of extra cash, to Nixon's accusing communist insurgents in the government of smearing him. Well, there's a story, isn't it? So, yeah, the story erupts. Eisenhower, hugely unhappy. This is not the campaign he wanted to run. Uh, He did not want the campaign to be the old guard Red Scare faction versus the moderate Democrats, because... He wasn't convinced that that was a winning tactic. He wanted the campaign to be the moderate Republicans versus the moderate Democrats. There was actually very little between them at the time, uh, but one of them had a war hero. So, I mean, that's a campaign you can win. Things get so bad that he made it very clear that he wanted Nixon to step down. Not, Not publicly, obviously, because that would look bad but he lets it be known through back channels let nixon know he needs to go nixon refused i mean he put it more diplomatically than i refuse but he essentially told eisenhower that if you want to fire me then fire me or otherwise i'm going nowhere that's that's quite ballsy yeah uh, eisenhower was not impressed by this you can't fire your running mate it doesn't look good so uh Nixon stayed on. Yeah, uh, things get quite nasty between them for a while. Eisenhower suggested that maybe Nixon should release uh, his finances so everyone could see everything's above above board. <laughs> Did he? Nixon then came out and said, oh, of course, of course, but I'd, I'll only do that if the Democratic uh, candidates do so as well. Not only saying that the Democratic candidate should, but obviously also implying that Eisenhower should. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's like, yeah, th- things went Kinda south. Worms. <laughs> yeah, things went south between Eisenhower and Nixon very quickly. Uh, the two never really get on, but he's he's there still. He's going nowhere. With Nixon feeling a little bit more secure, uh, him and McCarthy, in particular, because obviously we're in the age of McCarthy here, so McCarthy's yeah. going to show up, isn't he? Here he is. Mm. Uh, The two of them go into overdrive with a very nasty campaign. To put it bluntly, they just started making up stories of communists in the Truman administration. Uh, They also targeted the fact that Stevenson, the Democratic candidate, uh, might be gay, and that he had a file in the FBI as a sexual deviant. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, it gets very nasty. Uh, McCarthy announced that the Democratic campaign was full of, and unfortunately I quote... Pinks, punks, and pansies. Oh, so that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. 
By the way, he's a bit of an ass. We we have we've covered many villains, shall we say, in uh, American history. I mean, yeah. we we've covered the likes of Calhoun and uh, J P Morgan, and yeah. I think McCarthy might be the least likable of all the people we've come across so yeah. far. And he Calhoun was... owned slaves. I mean, that's how bad he was. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> Anyway, uh, despite this, Eisenhower uh, appeared to stay above the fray. I mean, we'll never know for certain how much he was uh, allowing the nastiness to go on, but he certainly seemed above it. The nastiness seemed to be coming from the old guards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the public were happy to give him the benefit of the doubt. And uh, he was the overwhelming favourite to win, especially when he announced that if he won the election before becoming a president, he'd fly to Korea to see how to end the war. Yeah, that's good. Which uh, really annoyed Truman, who who said, (laughs) if you know how to end this war, then tell me and I'll do it. Uh, (laughs) No, I'll do it once I've won. Uh, and yes, he, of course, he did win 442 electoral college votes to 89. Oh, that's an annihilation. Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, the Republicans also got the House and the Senate. It was a clean sweep. Uh, the Democrats only held the very deep South. That's but, interesting. But if you uh, look into the data, there are actually signs of cracks there. We're, we're about to see the flip. Um, anyway, after the victory, true to his word, Ike gets on a plane, flies to Korea, uh, goes and visits his son, who's a major over there, because of uh, uh, nepotism, I assume. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Ike was back in his element at this point. Uh, he knew everyone over there. Uh, he was at ease. He sized up the situation very quickly. A full frontal attack this time would be a very bad idea, he realised very quickly. Uh, the North Koreans and the Chinese were embedded. We're not going to win this if we attack. The commander over there, who had replaced MacArthur, spent until 2am one night trying to persuade Ike that they could win the war. I mean, if you just use a nuke or two, we can definitely <laughs> win this. No, we're not using a nuke. Yeah, was pretty much uh, Eisenhower's response. He told him to forget it. He's not going to set precedence, or rather continue with the precedence, by uh, using a nuke just because the war's tough. Yeah. So, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing a full frontal conventional attack either. Uh, by the time he's home, he had a clear idea of what he wanted to get out of the next four years. Number one was get out of Korea. Hmm. Need to figure out a way to do it. He wasn't certain how yet, but... That's number one on the list. Uh, Number two, we're going to focus on Europe in foreign policy because Europe needs to stand. If Europe falls and Russia takes over Europe, we're in trouble. Mm. So we focus on Europe. We don't get distracted by Asia. We're not going to get drawn into lots of wars in Asia. That would be a waste of time. We are going to try and contain the spread of communism uh, because we don't want Russia to get more powerful than us. And uh, we are going to provide foreign aid to keep profitable trading partners of ours afloat. If they go under, we lose money. So that makes sense. Uh, at home, we're going to keep the taxes because we're still in quite a bit of debt uh, after the war. Uh, and uh, we'll keep most of the New Deal. Uh, Eisenhower wasn't a huge fan of the New Deal, but he wasn't opposed to it like the old guard were. And yeah. he realised that uh, ripping out the New Deal would actually do more harm than good. Uh, so keep most of it in place. We'll scale it back slowly. That's yeah. his plan. Yeah. There were many in the GOP who, when finding this out, were appalled. This sounded (laughs) almost like a democratic platform. Uh, The old guard in particular wanted outright victory in Korea, not 
running away from it. They wanted a reduction in all foreign aid. They wanted a shift to Asia in foreign policy. Uh, they wanted immediate and massive tax cuts. And they wanted the New Deal gone, stripped out, burnt to the ground. He's, I mean, really, the only reason he's a Republican is because he just didn't really get on with Truman, right? <laughs> Partly, yeah. I mean, he described himself as a liberal conservative. He he was very much a centralist, though. That that's yeah. what he was. He he could have gone into the the Democratic Party and probably fit in quite well there. You've got to wonder whether he just realised, well, the Democrats are on the way out, the Republicans are on the way up. So whose horse well, should yeah. I hitch myself to? Do you hitch yourself to a horse? No, you hitch a horse to something, don't you? Yeah. Uh, either way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so maybe it's that. The fact is that the people who were opposing him the most at this point was not the opposition, uh, but the extreme faction in his own party, definitely. Anyway, Inauguration Day comes along. Eisenhower uh, showed a petty side at this point. Like you say, he didn't particularly get on with Truman. And uh, instead of him going into the White House before the inauguration, as was per tradition, once the limousine pulled up outside the White House... Uh, Eisenhower just stayed in it and waited for Truman to come to him, which was uh, an an obvious and public snub. Uh, Yeah, Uh, completely ignoring the tea that had been set out for the Eisenhowers as well. I mean, they they prepared stuff and everything. Aww. Poor chef. Like, lovely sandwiches. Going to waste. You know, when you'd like, you you cut a carrot in a certain way, it makes little bows and ribbons and stuff. That'd all been done. Cheese and pineapple on sticks. Yeah. In a hedgehog. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, not a real that, one, I hasten to add. That jelly rabbit you do, and you put the yes. mushed up green jelly around the outside to make it look in the grass. Yeah, and then you do mushed up blue jelly and put a boat on it. Yes. Yeah, all of that had been done. And Party it's just, rings. It's just, it's all, all melting. Even the things that don't usually melt, it's just all <laughs> melting. <laughs> yeah, the biscuits. Yeah, it's all, all getting very Dali-esque in there. It's very strange. But anyway, <laughs> they go to the inauguration. Uh, things are frosty. Now, quite why Eisenhower snubbed Truman quite this badly in the inauguration isn't known 100%. Uh, historians have speculated. Uh, some say he was just very annoyed with the campaign and how the campaign had turned nasty. Uh, There is one suggestion that Eisenhower knew that Truman had a copy of the letter that Eisenhower had sent to Marshall, the one saying, I'm going to divorce Mamie and get married to Kay and live in London. Now, as you can imagine, a letter like that's going to do Eisenhower some damage now he's president. Uh, And there is an idea that maybe Eisenhower didn't like the fact that Truman was holding this over him. So that's why there was the snobbing. It's a shame because Truman had actually secretly arranged for Eisenhower's son to come back to the country. Remember I said he was in Korea? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. he secretly arranged for his son to come back for the inauguration and hadn't told anyone. Yeah. Yeah. uh, So Truman had done this really nice thing for Eisenhower and Eisenhower didn't know and just snobbed him. Yeah, eventually they do make up uh, after Kennedy's death. They do kind of make up. Um, And also Truman destroys the letter because he did have the letter, but he destroys the letter apparently. So it all works out. But yeah, a bit of a petty side here in the inauguration. Uh, But after the inauguration, uh, Eisenhower settles into his job. He ran the White House like he ran the war room. He doesn't need to know details. Don't come to me with every little detail. Just get stuff done. If it's in your brief, you deal with it. Unless it reaches a certain level of importance, in which case come to me delegation good yeah no i won't tell you what that certain level of importance is that's your job to figure that out (laughs) he would refuse to receive any envelopes that hadn't already been opened and read because it's not his job to read things 
it's his job to respond to things that have already been read. So efficiency, yeah. uh, that, that was the idea. Uh, unsurprisingly, as a military man, he saw the National Security Council as the best way to govern. So from now on, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defence, the Vice President, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the head of the CIA would meet weekly, uh, with others being invited in as and when needed. The first major thing to cross the desk of Eisenhower is the death of Stalin. Brilliant, he said. Yeah, which uh, it's a very good film. It's a very good film. They all sat yes. down, they watched it. Yeah. Um, it's a very some, good, funny film. Someone mentioned that it wasn't historically accurate, and everyone oh. went, of course it's not historically accurate. <laughs> Look at it. <laughs> it's it's a comedy. Yeah. Uh, it's, anyway. it, yeah, it's a very good film. Anyway, Eisenhower was very surprised that in a world that was now chasing communist shadows in every single corner, apparently no one had thought to put a plan together for when Stalin died. There was no, like, Stalin death document that they could go to with a, an action plan or anything. Nope. So Eisenhower just had to wing it. But he saw an opportunity here. Send flowers, send flowers. <laughs> and a bouquet. He, he asked those close to him at the time, what could the United States actually do to ensure peace? Not, not talk about, actually do. What action can we make as a country that will help peace? Hmm. Because so far, we've been trading words with Russia. And tensions have just been ratcheted up and up and up. Uh, so, so what are we going to do? So he starts putting together a speech with his speechwriter. It was all... Uh, a lot of it was based around the idea that the jet planes that were roaring over everyone's heads uh, cost three quarters of a million dollars each. And mm. as Eisenhower pointed out, that is more money than a man making $10,000 a year makes in his lifetime. Yeah. this We are wasting money here. We could be spending that money on like hospitals, schools, infrastructure... We could be spending it on things that makes all our lives better. Instead, we are pouring it into these these uh, these planes because we're in this arms race. And where's yeah. it going to lead us? Well, at worst, atomic warfare, he pointed out. At best, we are going to be robbing every person and nation on Earth the fruits of their own toil. The speech is based around this, this idea. Uh, yeah. Eisenhower found his sentiments at odds with a lot of his own cabinet. His Secretary of State told a friend at this time that peace was all very well and good, but it would be a shame to leave Korea without giving the Chinese, and I quote, one hell of a licking. <laughs> yeah. uh, this got back to Eisenhower, who was furious. All right, if him and all his sophisticated advisers really mean that, then they cannot talk peace seriously. In that case, I'm in the wrong pew. For if it is war that we are talking about, I know people who can give me advice on that, and it is not the State Department. Either we cut out all this rolling around and make a serious bid for peace, or we forget the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Eisenhower was very annoyed that people were just clamouring for, for a fight. Yeah. Anyway, Eisenhower delivers his speech entitled Chance for Peace. Widely recognised as one of his most important speeches. Uh, in it, he asked for the new leader of Russia to work with him to peace. That world peace must start with an armistice in Korea. That's where we're going to begin. Let's stop fighting in Korea, and then nice. we'll work from there. Uh, now, with Russia facing internal problems, after all, Stalin's dead, <laughs> uh, and the United States looking for a way out of Korea anyway, well, it was only a matter of time. In fact, weeks before an armistice was signed. So there you go. Brilliant. Goes to show, if, if both sides want to have a war, it's, it's not, not too tricky. No. There were some very unhappy people in North and South Korea, but uh, yeah, <laughs> thought 
the big powers. <laughs> now, as you can imagine, all of this angered the main opposition to Eisenhower's presidency, which, as I've mentioned before, is not the Democrats, it's the old guard of the Republicans. Yeah. Uh, Taft happened to die suddenly at this time, uh, at the age of 53. Oh, and he never uh, became president. He never became president. Uh, the man taking over the old guard was a man named Noland. Now, Taft had managed to keep in check the more extreme factions of the old guard, but with him gone, McCarthy and his followers started to feel freer to just go for it. As they just make stuff up and... Well, as we will see, I'm, not, I'm going to uh, try not to get dragged too far down a McCarthy rabbit hole because he is a fascinating person and I'm sure at some point we will end up doing an episode on McCarthy because what he is an important figure. Senate episode, that would be. Yeah, he is a uh, he is an important figure in American history. So, yeah, we will go in more detail another time, but obviously we need to know a bit about him here. He was a grandstanding politician who knew how to get headlines. He didn't really care about pesky little things like the truth, uh, as long as it got him a win. Yeah. Uh, and in the Red Scare, he had found the perfect way to gain headlines. What you did is you stood up and you loudly said things like, I can prove that there are over 100 communists working in the State Department. I mean, you don't actually offer that proof, you understand. You just say you no. could prove it if you needed to. You, know, you say things like that. You say things like, I know that this person has communist sympathies. And yeah, you, you don't need to. You don't need to prove it. You just need to say it. Very quickly, most in Washington became scared of him. Because yeah. if, if he labelled you a commie, well, that was it. Your political career could be over unless you had some powerful backers. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if you'd if you only just started off your political career, you did not want to get on the wrong side of McCarthy. No. So you would bow down to his pressure. He, he was he was gaining power quickly. He's the worst kind of person, the worst kind of politician. Yeah, de- very much so. Now, at this time, he was the chairman of the Senate Committee on Government Operations. That meant that he would approve Eisenhower's appointments. Or, more to point, he wouldn't. Because McCarthy right. used this position to accuse whoever he liked of being a commie. Several battles took place, which Eisenhower usually won, but a strong dislike grew between them. Eisen, however, knew he had to stay above the fray. I quote here, I won't get into a p- contest with that skunk. <laughs> I really believe that nothing will be so effective in combating this particular kind of troublemaking as to ignore him. Nice. Because that he cannot stand. Nice. Yeah. Now, uh, Eisenhower was criticised for not uh, fighting against McCarthy quite a bit over the next few years. Uh, but I think it's got a point here. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. If, if he'd gone toe-to-toe with McCarthy, you can imagine that would have just found flames. Yeah. However, saying this, McCarthy's very hard to ignore at this time. I mean, this is called the McCarthy era for a reason. Uh, he was becoming more and more influential. Uh, he sent a couple of men to Europe one time to inspect the libraries there, looking for any suspicious texts written by suspicious authors. Now, these were libraries on American basis. So these yeah. weren't, like... Um, foreign libraries yeah but these were American (laughs) libraries in Europe so go over there and just see if you can find any suspicious texts by any authors that are on oh I don't know this list that we've drawn up Uh, over 30,000 books were discovered written by over 400 authors they were rounded up if you can round up a book uh, and burned (laughs) yeah yeah literal book burning going on 
Now, one night soon after this, at an address at Dartmouth College, uh, someone was talking about this, and Eisenhower happened to overhear it. Uh, what's this? Eisenhower said. Oh, I was just uh, talking about the burning of State Department books abroad, said the person. Oh, they're not burning books, said Eisenhower, just refusing to believe that that would be happening. <laughs> oh, I'm afraid they are, Mr. President. I have evidence. Eisenhower went through the roof. He could not quite believe this was going on, and he added a line to his speech that he delivered that evening that just said, don't join the book burners. Uh, he later said, don't be afraid to go into your library and read every book. How will we defeat communism unless we know what it is? That's a good point. But apart from this, he maintained his distance, really, from the, the growing craziness that was uh, McCarthy uh, because he knew that he did not want to be dragged into that fight uh, McCarthyism ramped up even more, anti-American hearings took place because they sound good don't they? Yeah Yeah. This sounds a bit like the treason trials Yeah, it's, it's not good, it is a, a bad period uh, Hundreds were imprisoned thousands lost their jobs based on little more than hearsay a growing wave of homophobia started to sweep the nation because uh, homophobia was linked to subversive actions and therefore linked to communist ideals. Right. I mean, this was just an excuse to go, yeah. oh, I, I, we don't like communists the at the moment, so let's, yeah, let's target gay people as well. So that, that's nice. Uh, McCarthy himself perhaps bit off a little more than he could chew, however, when he started accusing people in the Central Intelligence Agency of being rets. Now, I'll go into it a little bit more later, but the CIA is now a thing, by the way. Oh. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's, it's still very new. It's still in its infancy. Uh, but they got up and running quick, did the CIA, and they weren't messing about, as we will see. They broke into McCarthy's office and planted misinformation that would help discredit him. Nice. Something that only came out in 2004. Wow, really? So, yeah. So uh, no one's coming out of this looking good. No. <laughs> It's uh, it's all intrigue and plotting and uh, it's a big mess, all of it. Yeah, it's it's none of none of it's reading like a, a healthy government at all. Anyway, it was at the height of all this that some senators and members of the press finally start to fight back, realizing McCarthy's got to be stopped. He's he's bringing the government to to its knees, and mm. for what? So they start denouncing McCarthy's actions as rabble rising. Uh, now, this was coming from Democrats and Republicans alike, uh, as well as several journalists, the most prominent being Edward R. Murrow, who released a 30-minute TV special going over all of McCarthy's doings, uh, saying in one of his uh, speeches, the actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Which yeah. just very nicely sums up what was going on. If you've not come across Edward R. Murrow before, by the way, look into him. Fascinating guy. Uh, the the film Good Night and Good Luck is all about him, which I watched whilst doing my research. It's a very, very good film. Anyway, Eisenhower also was a fan because he invited Murrow to the White House the day after seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> I Best like friend. it. <laughs> yes. I'll quote, This guy McCarthy wants to be president. He is the last guy in the world who will ever get there if I have anything to say about it. Nice. So Eisenhower decides to finally start 
fighting back with action. Now, he'd been trying to pull strings in the background up until this point, uh, because he didn't want to be seen as publicly attacking McCarthy, but at this point, the gloves were off. He banned all employees of the executive branch from testifying in McCarthy's committee. Now, this was unprecedented. This was extending executive privilege to all of those who work with the president, not just the president himself. Mm. Many were uncomfortable with this. It's like, does this not set a bad precedent? Yeah. Like, what if we have a, I don't know, a crazy president in the future who just says, <laughs> no, you're not allowed to look into me and I'm banning anyone who knows me from talking because of executive privilege. Yeah. Uh, but despite this, people rationalise that McCarthy had to be stopped somehow, so, okay, let's let's do this. Uh, the tide against McCarthy was turning at this point, with many powerful men working against him in Washington, and with him unable to run his committees, because Eisenhower had essentially pulled the plug on it, uh, his popularity was fading. He was no longer as amusing to watch. He wasn't interesting. He wasn't getting the headlines anymore. Hmm. And then, in a case far too complex to get into, but it uh, involves the guys who went to Europe to do the book burning, yeah. uh, and one of them being drafted into the army according to McCarthy he was drafted in the army to pretty much kidnap him so he couldn't mm. carry on working for McCarthy as I say no one's coming out of this well no. it's, it's all horrible <laughs> uh, so there, there's a big committee going on all about this and eventually the senate to vote to condemn McCarthy 67 to 22 for conduct unbecoming a senator McCarthy essentially is destroyed by this uh, he starts drinking heavily and he dies a few years later oh that's unfortunate uh, yeah, so there you go. That that was the McCarthy era, summed up very briefly. All this mm. is going on in the background during Eisenhower's yeah. presidency. Wonderful. Yeah, uh, but just because McCarthy's defeated did not mean that the old guard were, and it did not mean that the uh, Red Scare had stopped. It's just the most flamboyant and uh, loud yeah. speaker uh, was gone. Most of the old guard were far better at politics. They were less histrionic, they were quieter, but they got things done. They continued to work to undermine the president and restrict his powers when dealing with other countries. Again, hoping to force the country back to a more isolationist outlook. I'm so sick of this I could scream, Eisenhower said one day, over the constant battle with his own party. In fact, he soon found himself far closer with the liberal wings of both parties than the conservative end of the GOP. He was uh, getting on with a, a certain Johnson from the Republican Party relatively well. Might want to keep an eye on Johnson because we'll be doing an episode on him soon. Oh, is he JFK's deputy uh, vice? Yes. Now, one area uh, that had come up at this time that Eisenhower was having to use as much of his foreign policy power as possible was... Vietnam. Vietnam. And so it begins. Uh, I'm not going to get too drawn into it here, but we do need to know a bit of background before we get into the next episode where it really kicks off. Uh, So just so you know, after the war, the French had acquired Indochina, which is modern Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. However, oddly, there were some in Indochina who thought that they'd be better served without the French ruling over them. Yeah. Yeah, so a revolt... independent things like that. Uh, crazy, crazy things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so a revolt happened, uh, led by Ho Chi Minh. Mm. Now they claimed independence in 1945, but no one really listened. So they tried again in 1950. Why not? People listened a bit more this time, as in Russia and China listened, and uh, they recognised Vietnam as its own communist country. The French fought hard and managed to keep the cities, but not the countryside. Uh, Fighting was painful, tough. It led nowhere but the slow erosion of the French strength. Oh, dear. 
until eventually they were very close to being completely wiped out. It was therefore of great interest in the United States, as you can imagine, where the policy of curbing the spread of communism meant that many were saying they need to get involved, because this is the spread of communism. Eisenhower had given the French some planes and some engineers, but uh, he was very wary of doing anything more. Yeah. Many were unhappy in the country of sending more troops to the Far East to die in jungles. They'd had enough of that in Korea. Do we really need to be doing this? Uh, the Joint Chief of Staffs approached Eisenhower and suggested the best way to help out the French without harming any American soldiers is simple. All we need to do is drop three nukes. We're, we're going to oh. call them. We're going to call them tactical nukes because that sounds good, doesn't it? Tactical nuke. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, we've added the word tactical. It's fine. Yeah. But what's the point in having these massive super bombs if we're not going to use them? Yeah. I'll quote Eisenhower: "You boys must be crazy." We can't use those awful things against the Asians for a second time in less than 10 years. I like that. You guys are crazy. That's a good answer. Yeah. yeah. Again, yeah. Eisenhower's like, no, every time we get into a war, we can't set the precedent that we just throw in a nuke because it's going to be tough. No. <laughs> we're not doing it. Nukes don't solve all the problems. Yeah. It's like, where, where does this end? Where exactly do you think us dropping nukes on everyone? Where's the logical conclusion, guys? Come on here. Uh. Yeah. So, when pushed for more general warfare, fine, if you don't want to use the nukes, we'll have to go in with troops then. Eisenhower still wasn't happy with that. If we attempted such a course of action, using our armed forces and going into areas, whether we were wanted or not, we would lose all our significant support in the free world. Yeah. Yeah, he claimed, that, he claimed it amounted to an attempt to police the entire world, and what gave them the moral right to police the world. Yeah. Yeah, many around him didn't see it that way. No. But a lot did. Yeah, you can you can kind of see why they would think that's up. But we're, we're the strongest. We can protect people better. We can, you know, oil. We're getting to that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, Eisenhower's decided, nope, there's going to be no help for the French. At least no more than we've already given. Getting involved in Vietnam would be a mistake, said <laughs> Eisenhower. Ominous gong. Yeah. Ike's main concern was the lives of people soldiers, civilians. He'd been in war for too long, and he had seen what war did, up close and personal. He wanted to avoid that mm. as much as possible. And besides, there is a newer and far better way of influencing world affairs than going in with the troops. Politics. Oh, better than politics. Music. <laughs> Live Aid. No. Because yeah. <laughs> um, as I mentioned... The CIA is now a thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Mm. Uh, which uh, we've not really talked about them yet, so let's give you a little bit of a very brief background. The CIA it wasn't called the CIA when it was first put together, uh, but it had grown out of the need to have an MI6-style intelligence service during the war. We really need an organisation to uh, actually sift through all this intelligence, so yeah. let, let's put an intelligence agency together. Thought FDR, which... Uh, it's put together, that's fine. Then after the war, it was uh, reformed into the CIA, and uh, it starts to really hit its stride at this point. Uh, yes, it was an intelligence service, but it also had a second brief, and that was covert action. Ah, uh, this is yes. planting information, causing problems, yeah. that kind of thing. The CIA was very quickly able to show that they could achieve things that would have a huge effect on the world stage. Now, I certainly do not have time to go into all the, quite frankly, 
awful, awful things that the CIA get up to during the Cold War. Uh, but let's have a look at one that links strongly to Eisenhower, shall we? So it's 1951. The Prime Minister of Iran, uh, Mossadegh, was fed up with British-controlled companies stripping the wealth out of the country. Iran only got 16% of the profits from the oil from Iran, which uh, isn't much. No. No. Uh, the workers worked in conditions that you can probably imagine, and the royal family got a huge payoff from Britain just to keep things smooth. Just keep it ticking over. Yeah. Now, That's obviously... I'm simplifying this somewhat to, to make it easier to understand in the time we've got to describe it, because you could do a whole series on this story. But Prime Minister Mossadegh uh, nationalised the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which is the early name for BP. Oh! Yes. Yes. So, essentially, BP was thrown out of Iran, the oil was nationalised. Now, to begin with, things don't hit the fan quite as much as you'd think, because in Britain, who's the Prime Minister? Oh, it's Clement Attlee. And Attlee pointed out, well, I can hardly complain. I'm nationalising the coal and the health and the electricity and the railways over mm. here, so I can't complain that the Prime Minister of Iran's doing the same with his resources. I mean, no, I'm not happy, but that's be, not much bit, I can do. bit two-faced if you... Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll make inquiries. Let's see what we can do. But uh, I don't know. But then Attlee was defeated. And oh, look who's back. Churchill. Yay, Churchill is back again. <laughs> Can't keep him down. Um, and the Tories were in no mood to try and work anything out with the Middle East. They needed to know their place, damn it. No. So they placed an economic embargo on Iran. This is when the midden hits the windmill. Yeah. Because not only did they place a naval embargo, bringing the country's economy to its knees, they also used back channels to stage a coup against the democratically elected prime minister. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it falls apart, it doesn't work, but naughty Britain. Yeah. Yeah. Now, all this achieves is to make the Middle East furious with Britain. Not just Iran. Like, lots of countries very unhappy with Britain. I mean, they were unhappy with Britain before because empire. Uh, but they're, they're still unhappy with Britain. Yeah. You, it's like you've just gone through a world war. Like you, you were beaten to a pulp during that war. Yeah, you eventually won, but surely you've learned something from it, Britain. Have you? No? Uh, no. No, apparently not. Uh, anyway... Were. Meanwhile, back in Britain, okay, their plans failed so far, but we do have a really powerful ally at the moment. Hi, America, says Britain. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Britain sends a top man from MI6 to go and talk with his counterpart in the CIA. So, obviously, this was a meeting in a park with holes cut in newspapers. Yes. Because there's yeah. no way that it's not that. Yeah. Yeah, one man in tweed. Oh, yeah. Or pinstripes. Pinstripes and a bald yes. hat, other yeah. one, trench coat, yeah, yeah fedora. Yeah, yeah, that's what's going on. Iran, by the way, says MI6, has this huge border with the Soviets. I don't know if you've noticed, America, but whew, whew, what a border with the Soviets. And uh, it's probably only a matter of time before, you know, the Reds get into Iran and uh, take all the oil. Don't you think you should do something about that, America? Communists. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes, it's maybe put your own man in charge over there. Now, the CIA, in the height of the Red Scare, yeah, actually, you're making a very good point, Britain. 
and uh, we really want to show what we can do as the CIA. So let's uh, Let's flex our missiles somewhat. Let's see what we can do, shall we? Now, Eisenhower was informed around this point. He was sceptical. Should we be doing this? Is this a good idea? Uh, But actually, you have put some statistics on my desk, and it's very hard to deny the West losing the oil that Iran was producing would be a disaster, because Iran was supplying 90% of Europe's oil at this time. That's a lot. Yeah, if the Soviets get that, Europe would fall, Russia moves into Europe, they're stronger, we're weaker. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Maybe... We need to do something. In fact, I quote here, we cannot ignore the importance of 657,000 barrels a day. So, fair enough, says Eisenhower uh, to the CIA. See what you can do. Uh, Kermit, Kermit Roosevelt was uh, in charge of the Middle East and the CIA at this time. This is the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. Kermit. Kermit Roosevelt. Kermit the Roosevelt. Kermit the Roosevelt, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely imagine him that way, Definitely. I know what you're picturing. And, Green Frog, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, so, Green Frog with a monocle, though, and a big moustache. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And a big stick. Yes. Yeah, Massive yes, definitely. Stick. So, Roosevelt, go and sort it out, will you? Uh, money was thrown at the problem, and before long, paid-for mobs were in the streets of Tehran. You will be shocked to learn that this almost immediately backfires. Uh, the country <laughs> became so unstable that many started to fear that a coup would rapidly lead to, guess what, a communist, communist takeover. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Britain was still very keen to go ahead, because Britain didn't actually care about the communism. They just wanted BP to keep the oil. The CIA was still convinced that they could achieve what they wanted, which is get their own man in charge over there. So they still wanted to go ahead. Uh, Eisenhower really starts to have doubts at this point. Mossadegh was pro-West. He was educated in Europe. Um, he's he's not a bad ally. No. Do we really want to get rid of him uh, and roll the dice on what follows just so we can make more profit on the oil? Because, I mean, we still get the oil, we just have to pay more for it. This seems a bit dicey. British Foreign Secretary, a man named Anthony Eden... Yes, it's it's Eden, before being Prime Minister. Uh, He came over to Washington and spoke at length at how this needed to carry on. Churchill also got involved, uh, talking to Eisenhower several times. Uh, Eisenhower gets very frustrated with Churchill, claiming that he's still living in the war, and uh, maybe he just needs to let some younger men take over. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But Eisenhower eventually was ground down. Uh, Everyone around him was saying, no, we need to do this. And his mind was changed. So the CIA set the coup off. And the Secretary of State publicly denounced the Iranian government for not doing enough to stop the violence. Which is nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a bit of uh, a the knife in there. Long story short, Mossadegh fell. The oil company was not nationalised. The profits ended up going mostly to Britain and the United States. So, success. It does actually pay off. Uh, That is exactly what they wanted to happen. Uh, Apart from the fact that the coup was not hugely subtle, to say the least, and an entire (laughs) generation of people in Iran now know exactly who would overthrown their government just to make some money over some oil. So let's hope that doesn't fester. No. Yeah. A little blowover in the morning. Yeah. Now, this is just one of many, many coups that the CIA does during the Cold War. In Eisenhower's term uh, in 1954, they overthrow the Guatemalan government just so 
America can maintain control of the fruit industry over there. Uh, there's My another one goodness. in Indonesia as well. Yeah. I mean, communism was being prevented. <laughs> people, yes, people were getting rich, but I mean, that's incidental. That's just capitalism. Um, yeah, wow. exactly. And that is, that's the, the way of life we're, we're supporting. And these, these countries look like communism might happen. So we've got to overthrow governments, even if yeah. they are democratically elected. And in many areas around the world that had recently learnt the very hard truth that the United States were now the global superpower, also started to learn that you cannot trust the United States. Because they will be saying one thing on the news, but they will be funding the revolts happening on your streets. Yeah. Yeah, so that's fun, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, let's hope that doesn't have a lasting impact on anything. Absolutely not. Anyway, in other world events, uh, 1955, the four big countries agreed to pull out of Austria. Germany was formally split into East and West. With all this going on, it was decided through diplomatic channels that the United States, Russia, France and Britain should meet to discuss how to de-escalate tensions. Maybe this Cold War's gone on long enough. Yeah. The old guard were not happy, um, because this is talking to the communists and giving concessions. But Eisenhower went anyway, obviously. Uh, little concrete was gained over the summit that lasted five days, but the countries were talking, uh, and that was good. It calmed tensions. Uh, generally, it was good press. We're not quite as on the brink of war as maybe we thought. So, yeah, this is fine. In fact, Eisenhower stole the show catching the Russians completely off guard when he suggested that the two countries open their airspaces to each other and allow each other to fly over taking pictures. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I'd not come across this before I read that. I went, oh, wow, did he? That's, a, that's yeah, that's, what, you, you'll allow us. Yeah. Well, that means you can see what we're doing. Uh. <laughs> well, it was a dark and stormy day, apparently, that this speech took place, and just as Eisenhower said, a sound peace can be achieved, but only by patiently and thoroughly following a hard and sure and tested road. At that point, there was a huge clap of thunder and all the lights went out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perhaps the, the Russians saw this as a sign because they declined the offer. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, Eisenhower's prestige went up around the world. Here is a president actively trying to do something to de-escalate the Cold War. Hell yeah. So, yeah, that's good. In fact, at home, his approval rating was 79%. I, I can't imagine. That, that is insane. That is ridiculous. That is insane. That is, that is pretty much the whole country talking with one voice there. Yeah. He is a very popular president at this point, uh, which is good news because the next election's coming up. And as much as Eisenhower was liked, the GOP was not. But I'll quote Eisenhower here. The Republican Party must be known as a progressive organisation or it will be sunk. Eisenhower really did not like the fact that the Republicans were seemed to be being pulled to a conservative right. Mm. He, he thought the Republicans needed to maintain the centre ground. Yeah. Anyway, things were just hotting up for Eisenhower when he had a heart attack. Oh, no. It was described as a moderate attack in the press. Not mild, but not severe, apparently, was how it was described. <laughs> I mean, he's ill. Yeah, he's seriously ill. It's, it's, mm. it's, it's not a cakewalk, uh, but uh, he's, he's not on death's door. So mm. he's going to have to take some time off, but he'll be fine. He's not dead. He's not dead. That's mm. what I heard anyway. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's probably fine. It's probably playing squash. 
I know. Yeah, why, why are you asking me? Yes, I am the press secretary. Go away. <laughs> anyway, Ike wondered whether to withdraw from the presidency. Obviously, as I've just had a heart attack, should I really be running for president? But as many do when they are president, uh, he just couldn't imagine anyone else doing the job as well as him. He certainly didn't want anyone from the old guard getting in. Yes, he's trying to defend the position, I guess. Yeah, and he didn't particularly want the Democrats to get in, so... Tell you what, if the doctors give me a clean bill of health, I'll go for it, he says. And uh, the doctors do, so he was back in the race. Uh, and then the Suez Crisis arrived. Yes, again, this crisis stemmed from European powers simply not accepting that the colonial age was coming to an end. <laughs> this crisis mirrors the one in Iran. Uh, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail on the Suez Crisis. Although, interestingly, if you look it up uh, to find details on Wikipedia, for example, it now says at the top not to be confused with the Suez Canal being blocked in 2021. Which, <laughs> which amuses me that the, the canal being blocked for a few days is apparently as big as this crisis. But yeah. there you go. That's time for you, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, so what's going on over here? Well, a former colony who were tired of seeing their country's resources go to Europe, attempted to wrestle the control of those resources from Europe. Just like in Iran. Yeah. Uh, in this case, instead of oil, it was the Suez Canal that links the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. Yeah. President Nasir nationalised the canal. It's, again, hugely simplifying this. There's a lot more going on, but that's the crux of the situation. Uh, Britain, France and Israel then hatched a plot to take it back. Here's, here's the cunning, cunning plan here. Israel's going to invade, and then Britain and France would go in as a peacekeeping force. Oh. Honest. Oh. Yeah. That way we're not invading. We're not invading. Yeah. We're Israel's supporting. invading. Yeah. Uh, not us. Definitely not us. Yeah. Uh, now... Just before this kicked off, there had actually been a political struggle with the United States and Russia over Egypt, because obviously there had been. Both superpowers wanted to have as much influence in the Middle East as possible, and uh, this meant talking to Egypt. There had been talk of the United States funding and building the proposed Nile Dam that they were going to build, uh, but these talks fell apart, and it was one of the reasons why Nasser nationalised the canal. So bit of a crisis in the Middle East. Eisenhower obviously still wanted Egypt on the west side, so he called up Prime Minister Eden, because Churchill's gone by this point, to stress that to go into Egypt would be unwise. Just so you know, Britain, don't, don't, don't do this. Don't push your luck. I'm telling you now, do not do this. The, the canal, I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if you looked at the map recently, the canal starts in Egypt, and guess where it ends? In Egypt. <laughs> it is, it's all in Egypt. You, you have no justification for this. You, you, we do not have the moral high ground here. They can nationalise it if they want. Britain and France refuse to listen. But sorry, your, your, your tele telegram got lost. So, so, sorry, bad line, bad line, sorry. Carnic, you... Uh, meanwhile, in Washington, just about everyone, from his cabinet to Congress to the Joint Chief of Staffs, argued with Eisenhower that you're doing the wrong thing. That Britain and France are our closest allies. We need to support them. No, it doesn't matter if they don't have them all high ground. We need to support our allies. Eisenhower was not impressed with this argument. The no. fact was that Britain and France were in the wrong. You can't just go swanning into another country just because you feel like it, yeah. he said very loudly over the irony gong being clattered in the yeah. background. <laughs> can't go in with troops. 
it's fine to pay off like revolutionaries, <laughs> but it just yeah. yeah, that's just revolution. That's not us. Yeah, yeah. Burn the um, papers. <laughs> anyway, the United States refused to back its allies. Britain and France were forced into a humiliating climb down. And if anyone was still unsure about whether the age of European supremacy was at an end or not, well, it was now clear to all. Britain no longer had any teeth. America said you are not allowed to invade a country, and Britain were forced to do it. It's at this point the Revolutionary War was really won. You get the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Throw that last barrel of tea over into the the harbour. Anyway... Eisenhower's popularity made the election that's still going on in the background a foregone conclusion even better than last time, 457 votes to 73. Oh my goodness. Eisenhower's second term was dominated to begin with uh, by internal problems. And as with everything at this time, obviously the link is communism. Can't move for communism. Step outside your door. Oh, what have you stepped in? Oh, it's communism. Uh, It's all red. Uh, It's all machine. Yeah, yeah. You never guess what those commies are saying about us. Yeah. They're saying that we live in a racist country. I absolutely not. I know. We, shocking. We got rid of slaves. Utterly shocking. We're going to have to do something about that. Was the general talk in Washington at yeah. this time? They they did do something about it. Racial discrimination was declared a national security issue. As in, wait, this isn't going to be positive, is it? Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, the fact is that the communists were using the fact that America were quite racist uh, as propaganda against a capitalist society. So many in America thought, right, maybe we really do need to get on top of these race issues then because it's making us look bad. Should we end the older segregation thing then? Yeah, I mean, it's slightly depressing that it wasn't the fact that people thought that it is just just abhorrent yeah. all the racism going on it just took for the fact that russians were using it as a stick to beat them with that yeah. uh, some people started going no we do need to sort this out then but well, well there you go uh, <laughs> yeah in 1954 there was a landmark case brown versus the board of education and it was ruled by the supreme court that it was unconstitutional to have segregated schools mm. Yeah, so there we go. That's good, isn't it? Is that there's a famous picture of a little girl being walked into a school? We're, a yeah, we're not quite there yet, but you're on the right track here. This yeah. is definitely all linked to that. Uh, now, in order to be a role model for the rest of the country, Eisenhower ordered that all the schools in the District of Columbia be integrated immediately. Mm. Yeah. The hope was that the rest of the country would follow. Yeah. The rest of the country did not follow. No, no. <laughs> As you can imagine. I mean, to be fair, lots of it did. Uh, a huge majority of the country, in fact. Uh, but there were certainly pockets where they did not. Uh, white citizen councils sprang up all over the South, described as the Ku Klux Klan in suits. Uh, in Congress, 101 members pledged to bring an end to the ruling of uh, Brown versus Board of Education because it was unconstitutional. What? States' rights. Oh. Yeah. Uh, the bubbling tensions came to a head in 1957 in Little Rock in Arkansas. Uh, the school board there had very reluctantly admitted black children onto the role of the school. Uh, yeah. Guess how many? One? Nine. Oh, nine. Okay. Nine. Nine children that were heavily, heavily vetted. Yeah. If we're going to have some black children, we're going to have to make sure they are 
the least black that we can find, whatever that might mean, essentially was the uh, the attitude. Yeah. So, all very depressing. Anyway, the governor at this time was a man named Faubus. Faubus was an interesting character. Uh, he claimed that the gun sales in the state recently had gone through the roof. Well, that clearly indicated that there's going to be a problem. So, I'm going to deploy the National Guard. Okay, says everyone. Mm -hmm. Governors deployed the National Guard. They're now standing outside the school uh, that the children are about to turn up to. Uh. When the nine children turn up to school for their first day of school, with their lunchboxes, they were faced with a baying mob shouting abuse at them and the National Guard, who were blocking their way. The National Guard were not there to help get them in the school. They were there to stop the children. You cannot go in. It would cause a riot. Go home. You're not welcome here, essentially was the message. God. Yeah. Now, by this time, the FBI had been sent down to go and find out what the hell was going on. Uh, Faubus sent an angry telegram to Eisenhower saying that federal interference would lead to violence in his state. Eisenhower wrote back, When I became president, I took an oath to support the Constitution. The only assurance that I can give you is that the federal Constitution will be upheld by me by every legal means at my command. So, no sympathy. Good. Uh, uh, The FBI did a quick investigation. Uh, It turned out that the gun sales had not increased at all. Faubus had just made that up so he could deploy the guard. So Eisenhower met with Faubus and gave him a way out. Okay, this this has gone on far enough. Here's a way that you can back down, but you can save face. We keep the the whole thing quiet. You can keep the guard out there. That's fine. Just change their orders. Have them protect the black students as they go into school. Just get them to turn around. That's all you need to do. Get them to face the other way. After all, as Eisenhower said, there can only be one outcome here. The state will lose. Mm. Don't pick a fight with me here. So Faubus reluctantly agreed and headed back to Little Rock. And did nothing. Next day, the black children turned up to go to school once more. I mean, this is dragging out over weeks, by the way. This isn't quick. So the children turn up to go to school. Finally, at last, it's all sorted out. Uh, The National Guard are there and refuse to let the children in. So it then goes to the courts. The courts order the National Guard to step down. At this point, Faubus eventually gives in. I mean, he's got no legal leg to stand on. If he pushes it any further, he will be arrested. So, fine. The National Guard go home. The next Monday rolls around... And the children attempt to go to school again. And? Well, this time, a mob of thousands blocked their path. Now, the children were smuggled into the school, but they were not there for long before they had to be smuggled back out again because the mob had stormed the school. I mean, at this point, you've got to... What exactly were they hoping to achieve? What is wrong with people? I don't know what is wrong with people. Anyway, Eisenhower was informed that it was probably Faubus who uh, had organised this mob, and the rioting was continuing, and it was only getting worse. Eisenhower, probably sighing at this point, decided it was time to break out the big guns. He ordered the mobilisation... <laughs> Tactical nuclear warhead. <laughs> <laughs> at last, he's going to use one. <laughs> Almost can imagine the Joint Chief of Staff sat at the side. Is it, is it time, sir? <laughs> I've got the button right here, sir. <laughs> All you have to do is press it. No, he he ordered the mobilisation of the 101st Airborne. Oh. Yeah, he did. He sent in the paratroopers. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I think they drove, but in my head, this is... uh, 
this Parachute. is all the characters from Band of Brothers <laughs> 10 years on. Yeah. This is what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, the first turn up uh, in Arkansas, the National Guard was placed directly under Eisenhower's command, which he was able to use uh, an executive order to do. So the National Guard no longer answered to the governor. They answered to him. And uh, a thousand troops were sent in, and the town was locked down tight. Eisenhower went on to uh, address the nation to assure everyone that this is me using military force to uphold the law. This is this is not me going in with the troops. This is not big government oppressing its people. The law is clear here, and it needs to be upheld. And 70% of the population roughly agreed with him. So it was a, it was a popular decision. Good. Even in the South, a huge majority of people agreed with this. So it was seen as going too far by almost everyone, the, what was happening in Little Rock. Uh, anyway, the troops stay there for the whole academic year, and the nine children get to go to school. How nice. I'm sure they had a lovely time. I'm sure they did. Yes. Uh, so, that happened. Uh, and then we move on to the last major incident of Eisenhower's uh, presidency. And we're back to international problems. Yeah. Or rather, the thawing of those problems. Because good news, Jamie, the Cold War is coming to a close. Yay? Yeah, yeah. Diplomatic right. channels between uh, United States and Russia have been steadily improving. Uh, it's got to the point where Nixon was sent off to the USSR to go and have a tour. He uh, met with the leader, the new leader, Khrushchev, uh, and Nixon invited Khrushchev to go to the United States. Yeah, why don't you come over? Have a tour. Go and see Hollywood, Niagara Falls, that kind of thing. Khrushchev arrived in the United States in September of 1959 and spent two weeks just bombing around the United States. Loving how amazing capitalism is. Oh, he, he had a great time, apparently. Uh, it was all very nice, all very successful. Uh, he went to New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Washington. He met with Eisenhower personally at Camp David, and they had quite a good chat. Eisenhower asked the uh, Russian premier how his military got money out of him. And then, before Khrushchev answered, admitted that what happened in the White House was his advisers would come to him and say, if you don't give us this, the Russians will get ahead. And Eisenhower felt forced to hand over the money. Yeah. Uh, at this point, Khrushchev admitted, yep, that's exactly the same in Russia. Uh, Eisenhower replied, that's what I thought. You know, we really should come up with some sort of agreement in order to stop this fruitless, really wasteful rivalry. So they, there's some conversations going on. Yeah? Yeah. That's nice, yeah. isn't it? Uh, yeah. The trip resulted in the thawing of the debate over the state of Berlin, because that's been debated for quite some time. Uh, the Russians had delivered an ultimatum, uh, and then that just was allowed to slide. So that's nice. And uh, things were looking the best they'd been for a very long time. It was even mooted that in the next summit of the Big Four, they really might actually get something done this time, as opposed to just sitting around and talking. Uh, and, yeah, great. Everything's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, then a U-2 spy plane, the last ever one scheduled oh. to be used, disappeared over Russia. The U-2 spy plane, is that with Bono, The Edge? I'm not sure which one was in the plane at the time. Wow. Uh, it's classified that. Maybe the original drummer. Maybe the original drummer. Um, yeah, it just disappears over Russia. Eisenhower was informed. He had known the risks of using a spy plane was great, but he figured we need to know what the Russians are up to. 
so that the, the results would justify the risk. And he was assured that, worst comes to worst, if the Russians manage to shoot one of these planes down, there's no way the pilot's surviving. Uh, <laughs> Thank and, goodness. And the plane would be just, like, destroyed beyond recognition. It flies so fast and so high, uh, you could claim it's anything. So it's, the risk is fine. It's fine. Honestly, it's fine. Uh, then... Khrushchev announced to the world that they had proof that the United States were illegally spying on them. Washington scrambled to cover up what's going on. I mean, they're bluffing. The Russians are bluffing. There's no way they can prove anything. Uh, But let's be certain. uh, NASA released a statement saying that a weather plane had disappeared recently. By the way, we're just just pointing it out now, by the way. (laughs) There's a weather plane. Uh, We lost it a few days ago, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Hadn't thought to mention it. Um, uh, We were looking for it. Uh, Anyway. uh, What, Russia? Oh, no, now you mention it. Wasn't it Russia? It disappeared. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The State Department then released uh, a a statement announcing that there had definitely been no planes over Russia that day. Uh, uh, Oh, have you heard about this weather plane that NASA's just announced? It must have been that. Oh. Yeah. The next day, Russia announced the pilot's name and the fact that he worked for the CIA. Oh, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> uh... yeah, I, yeah. No, he does work for the CIA, but part-time. Part-time, he's also a weatherman. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a meteorologist hobbyist. Yeah. You, what, what you need to be asking is, which hat was he wearing when he was over Russia? Because, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure it, it, it was... Uh, Weather. That's what I heard. Yeah. Weather. weather. Yeah, Washington attempted to deny deny this. Uh, Eisenhower was furious. Like I say, he'd been assured that if any plane went down, the pilot's gone for certain. But no, apparently the pilot survived. And now they're in a lot of trouble. Not great. Washington's attempt at a cover-up at this point essentially amounted to them muttering and uh, stumbling over words. Until eventually Eisenhower told his cabinet, I'm just going to have to admit it. The evidence is mounting up here and we're starting to look like fools. Yeah. Uh, his brother contacted him at this time, interestingly, uh, to say, don't admit it yourself, blame a subordinate, say someone did it without your knowledge. But Eisenhower refused. No, I'm president, book stops with me. Wow. I'm sure someone said that recently. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, on May the 9th, he admitted to the world that the United States were indeed spying on the Russians illegally. Soz. <laughs> Overnight, it destroyed the progress of the last few years. Uh, The Big Four summit did go ahead, uh, but the Russians were furious about the spy plane. Just Uh, like they glaring for the entire day. Yeah. De Gaulle, however, because De Gaulle's back, um, very, very rightly pointed something out, though. Mid-Russian rant at how offended they were that they were being spied upon, de Gaulle pointed out that one of Russian's newfangled space satellites had crossed French airspace that day. Are you telling me that that doesn't have a camera on it? The Russians just didn't say anything. It's like, we saw those photos you took of the moon using your satellites. Are you saying that they don't point down as well? The Russians didn't say anything. (laughs) Yeah. At that point, Eisenhower spoke and said, yes, yes, of course, we were spying on you in the same way that you spy on us, um, but we were only doing it to make sure there was no surprises. You remember when I said we should open up our airspaces? It's like, that, that's the kind of thing that I wanted to ensure, there's no surprises. So, where are you going? Where are they fought off? Yeah, the Russians <laughs> just storm out at that point. They are not happy at all. So, yeah, um, 
it really looked like we, they were getting somewhere with the Cold War, and it all just falls apart because one plane went down, which oh. is a shame. Yeah. Anyway, the upcoming election between JFK and Nixon, um, Eisenhower had very little to do with. He's on his way out. He's not. He can't run again. The two term limits now mm. in place, so he has very little to do with that. Uh, he barely summons up the energy to support Nixon, sort of. He said a couple of things like, yeah, Nixon, I know him, and uh, I can't say I remember any decisions Nixon made as vice president. Things that really weren't actually that helpful. (laughs) I've definitely been in a room with Nixon. Yeah, stuff like that. Anyway, he left office with a warning delivered to the country via a television address. The United States and the world faced many problems, he pointed out, but there was one in particular that was worrying him, and that was how rapidly the United States was becoming dependent on the military-industrial complex. Hmm. The federal budget on defence was now astronomical, and because of that it was too big to fail. In fact, I quote here, the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. Interestingly, his last warning is not against the communists. No. His last warning is the rise of the power of the military within his own country. And with that, he leaves office. And that's his presidency. He died a few years later. All right, OK. Yeah. <laughs> so, there you go. See, he wasn't a... He didn't hold a political office, did he, before he became president? No, he is one of America's military presidents. So I guess... And, and yes, he did... Like a semblance of morality as well. I mean, you could argue also he absolutely did not with some of the things that happened, but like Guatemala. But <laughs> but on the whole, you know. Well, it sounds like it's starting to uh, judge him here. So shall we go yeah, into it? Let's I think we it. should. Okay. I mean, this this one's a debate. This one is. Um, in fact, I'll just go into it. Okay. Good. Mm. Here, uh, he got the United States out of Korea and did it quickly. Yes, he did what he did. He, he did what he said he was going to do. Yeah. So, yeah, he did what he said he was going to do, which is a positive. Also, there was a strong argument to be made that that was the right thing to do for the United okay. States at the time. There were some claiming that they should stay in Korea and just keep fighting, but um, I think in retrospect, um, America were better place staying out of that. I think so. Now, after Korea, um, there was a looming economic crisis. I mean, World War II's ended, and now Korea's ended, and they're at peace. And we know what happens to economies after wars. They tend to tank a little bit. But learning from the Great Depression and everything that happened in that time, he set up the largest public works project in history, which is the construction of the United States Interstate Highway. Oh, like Route 66 kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Let's build all of the highways. Huge, 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 huge project, uh, which uh, they were able to pour money in, uh, people got work out of, uh, and it really did help the economy tick along. There was no big crash. Um, Now, again, as I said before, economics is hugely complex, and there is debate how much this helped the the country, but many historians say that it did, so there's Mm. that. He expanded the social security scheme, uh, he raised minimum wage, and he funded the polio vaccine program. So, for people, just normal people living in the country, there were things to point out and go, oh, this has made my life better, and what yeah. more do you want from a president? From... I don't have polio. <laughs> yeah, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, I'm not starving to death, and I'm now earning more. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good. 
Then we've got some things we covered a few times. He absolutely refused to use nukes. Yes. Yeah. And that set a precedent. Because if the first president after Truman had come along and done what Truman did, which was, yeah, go ahead, use it, then that's it. The president afterwards would have done, and we most likely would have had a full-on nuclear war by this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's a scary Uh, thought, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Uh, The the (laughs) fact that we have the two times in history at the end of the war as a full stop on the world war, yes, it's bad, but you can kind of separate it off. If, If nukes were then used in Korea, and then in Vietnam, which both were suggested, and then in Little Rock... Um, it really, it, it was a dangerous road to go down. Eisenhower saw how dangerous that road was and point blank refused to do it, even though there were many in uh, high up places calling for them to be used. So that's good. Yeah. Uh, the Cold War escalated under him, but you can argue it would have escalated quicker if he hadn't been fighting against those in his own government. There were many who were saying, no, we need to keep attacking and fighting harder and faster. We shouldn't be de-escalating. We should be growing and attacking. Yeah. So um, he manages to mostly keep a check. It's a shame. If that plane hadn't been shot down right at the end, you could point at this and say, yeah, he managed to de-escalate things. Uh, Unfortunately, right at the end, it just ruins everything. Yeah, it does. And he does need to take uh, the blame for that because he was the one who ordered the spy plane to go over. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now, we're not quite seeing the political push for civil rights yet. We very soon will be, uh, but we're not quite there yet. But there are foundations being put in place under Eisenhower and also, to be fair, Truman, uh, because segregation starts to be uh, pulled out of first the military under Truman, which Eisenhower then pushes even further, mm-hmm. and then the schools as yeah. well. Which, uh, okay, Supreme Court decision, uh, but Eisenhower fully supported it and then said DC is going to be the role model. Yeah. So that's good. Although it should be mentioned, uh, he was widely criticised for not going far enough in this area. As we will see, there will be politicians coming up quite soon who go far, far further. Yeah. So, uh, but it's a start. Okay, so that's good. Yeah. Uh, Then we got bad. Ordering the CIA to go around the world toppling governments just because they were a danger to the wealth of the United States. I mean, that's... Just because they want cheap fruit, yeah. Yeah, um, it's oil and fruit. And yes, you can make the argument that they didn't want Russia to become more powerful, but the argument doesn't hold too much water when you look into the details. Uh, In Iran, the British wanted BP to, to keep the oil. Yeah. And they managed to get america on board it's just it's just not on and, <laughs> yeah unfortunately this is one of the reasons why there is a lot of anti-american feeling in the world it stems from this kind of interference that starts at this point just in the same way there's a lot of anti-british feeling in the world mm. and anti-french feeling in the world yeah. it's uh these big powerful empire countries that just go around doing whatever the hell they want with other countries, it causes tensions. And I don't know if you've noticed, those tensions have only grown in recent years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's not good. He was also widely criticised for being inactive as a president. He went and played a lot of golf. Uh, He (laughs) was seen as not doing much. 
But actually, most his- modern historians have uh, revised this, saying, mm, yeah, he played, he played golf, but everyone needs to unwind. And he was just a good delegator. He made it very clear that the important things are deal with, otherwise you deal with it yourself. So he wasn't a micromanager. Does that yeah. mean that's he's a bad leader? You don't no. need to micromanage to be a good leader. So there you go. A mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah. I think the positives definitely outweigh the negatives. Uh, I would comfortably give him an eight. You're going for eight. I'm. I'm not. I think he did some good things that would say. I. If you took out the bad, I'd say eight, because I think there are some good things here. I think the most important is uh, him refusing to use nukes. Yeah, he um, but also, he did some good stuff for the country. He, mm. he was. He was a. He was a decent president. But the actions of the CIA at this time. Yeah. I've got to take it at least down to five. Really. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, it's a shame. If, if you took that away, if you took away the meddling of the CIA into different countries, because this, this is exactly what the founding fathers of America were fighting against. Yeah, well, yeah. They were a small country and they were fed up of a big, powerful country interfering with them. And it's like, well, look what's happening now. Well, yeah. So... Um, and Eisenhower was the one who approved it. So, yeah. Well, I'm going to stick with my eight, but I You're understand with why chasing five. Yeah. Top of 13. Oh, we're second president in a row where we're... Diverging quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, we are. Interesting. Okay. No, I'm happy with it. I think that's a good overall score in this yeah. this round. Okay, next. Disgrace. Well. <laughs> what? What sorry, have you got? Sorry, you already said it in a way. He toppled down governments. Ah, uh, that, that's oh, in statesmanship, that's, though. Okay. Yeah. Then it's the K thing. It's, it's a biggie. Well, yeah, you got the fact that he went gallivanting around Europe with another woman whilst he was married. Um, and apparently there was a war on at the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Remember, he also might have done the same thing in the Philippines as well when he went over there. Um, but, I mean, with K, I'd, I'd, I'm not happy giving points with that. It seems to me like he went to, to Europe and he fell in love with someone. And yeah. He made a decision ultimately to go back to his wife. I wouldn't want to be Mamie. It sounded like she had an awful time at that yeah, point. Yes. But uh, I don't know. Um, it's nothing. Life's messy at times. I, I'm not. I'm not going to give him a point for that. No. I'm not. And then I went really looking into the scandal angle. Like, surely it's got a scandal. Everyone's got a scandal. Yeah. Apparently, apparently, he doesn't have a scandal. Oh, okay. He is linked to one scandal. Oh. But I've already told you that scandal, and it's not actually his scandal. Uh, his vice president had a secret fund when he was campaigning. Yeah. That, I definitely think that's going to fit more in Nixon's episode than might. Eisenhower's episode, especially yeah. since Eisenhower wanted Nixon gone for that. Yeah. So, that, yeah, I mean, there's nothing hugely in his personal life um, that you look at and go, oh dear, that's a shame. Um, and there's no big scandals. I I don't think we can give him a point. I don't no. think I can anyway. No, I don't I know, you, you can give him a point for the fact that Mamie must have been really upset. Nah. If you want. Nah. Um, no, fair enough. I think only the second ever president to have zero in this round. That's good. If I remember correctly, I think Hayes got zero in this round. Oh, of course. For being a lollipop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay, well done, Eisenhower. What's next? 
Okay, so let's very quickly go through this. He grew up in a very poor household, remember? He then went to West Point. There was lots of larks and pranks, as there often is. Uh, then he went off to train the people operating the tanks, even though there were no tanks. I mean, you're going to get a good episode out of that. Oh, it's yeah, going full dad's army at that point. Yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> uh, then they didn't go off to war in France, nope. and he was very upset about that. I remember that, just, just as his train was going away. <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> it's just about to go under the water, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then he did go to France to write a tour book of the Battles of France, remember, mm. which was nice. He then worked, worked in Washington under MacArthur and then went to the Philippines under MacArthur, and he hated MacArthur. He might have had an affair at this point, and his friend died in a plane crash. Mm. Imagine you could get some good stuff out of that. Uh, he then went to Europe and definitely had an affair uh, with a model-slash-driver. I mean, you're getting, you're getting good stories out of that as well, aren't you? There was some kind of war on. Uh, he led the invasion of North Africa, Sicily, and then just the rest of the European war, including D-Day and everything that followed. Apparently, you can make good stories out of that. I've seen it done a couple of times. Uh, then he stayed in Europe and helped settle post-war Europe, negotiating with the Russians whilst he did. Uh, yeah. Then you've got the whole deciding to split up with Kay, leaving that letter, going home. Uh, he works in Washington for a short while and then becomes the president of Columbia University. And that's when everyone switches off. That's episode eight that no one watches. Yeah. Everyone goes up to episode nine at that point. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's the Columbia episode. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then he becomes president and everything from this episode happens. So we've got Korea, we've got the Cold War hotting up, you've got McCarthy and all of that. It's a, it's an interesting life. Yeah, it is. What's going on? It is. There's a lot going on. It's got to be one of the more interesting ones. I think so. Like being in charge of the war as well, that's interesting and yeah. He's sort of yearning to be that and to do that. And he sort of learned how to delegate on getting through doing that as well. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's good training to be a president, I guess. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's all pretty good. Um, I'm impressed. I'm going to say eight. I'm going to match you. I'll match you with eight as well. Total of 16. <laughs> he looks like an egg. <laughs> he does look a bit like an egg. He's a... Uh, so th this one's a bit bit new. It's brighter than most of them. It's not got a black background. It's got no. a brown background. It's very casual. Very casual. He's sat in his chair but turned sideways. The chair is facing to the right and he's turned to face you with his glasses in his hands as if he's just taken them off because you've just said something so interesting. He's taken off his glasses yeah. and gone, oh, really? Tell me more. Do you know what I um, love about this? What? Look at the chair. The chair is amazing. The studs and the lighting and the let it's beautiful. The the chair is photorealistic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the whole thing is, you know, you can tell it's, it's oil good. paintings. It's a very good painting, but that yeah. chair looks phenomenally good. Yeah, he's, he's got his waistcoat on, a blue tie. We're looking very modern mm. now. Oh, nice cufflinks. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I like it. It's good. I'm yeah. not sure what I like about it, but it, it looks it's more, good. It doesn't look so formal as well. It looks more informal and more... Yeah, casual. Yeah. yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna give him an eight. Oh, I'll, I'll match that. I think it's a okay, match so that, that. That is a four for this round then. Bonus. And so we come to bonus terms. Two. 
two, two full terms. No one tried to kill him. He was, in fact, very popular, so no for assassination. Um, and because he was very popular, both elections utter landslide, so he gets the full two points for election. Well, we're going to have a score. Oh, yeah. So I think he's going to score quite highly because he didn't get anything taken off, which is rare. That is true. So he got 29 for Silchin that. Then add four, which is 33. 35, 37. 37, you say? I may have got this wrong, hang on. Let me double check that because uh, yeah. that's an important score if you got 37. Yeah, 37. Wow. That, just so you know, puts him in joint fourth place with Washington. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. Washington being knocked down to joint fourth. He has been beaten by the two Roosevelts and Lincoln at the moment. Now, just again to remind people, this is not who was the best president. This is who is the most interesting and one that doesn't make you go, oh, I feel sad inside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So so we're, we're not saying that Eisenhower was as good a president as Washington, although... I don't know, maybe we are saying that. Uh, what was his statesmanship score? Oh, uh, 16, 13. 16, sorry. I. 13. 13, I. You see, Washington like beats that hands down. He got 17 for that. Yeah. But, yeah, joint score with Washington. Mm. There's only one thing that can differentiate the two now. That's the one question we've got left to ask. American or American? Well, obviously, yes. He's oh, American. you're saying obviously, yes. I think, oh, yeah, I think obviously, yeah. He did more, although to be fair, some of the repercussions of some things that happened yeah, yeah, into that's modern what I'm day, thinking. but we can't think about that yet because we have no idea. If we ranked oh. him the day he left office, we wouldn't know. Mm, I don't know. Come on, it's Ike. Ike. I do like Ike, it must be said. That's something I had to cut for uh, time reasons, the whole uh, campaign, which was quite nice. I like um, Ike. Yeah, yeah, that was a campaign slogan. That was good. Uh... I'm torn, Jamie. I am torn. I don't want to give an American to someone who authorised the CIA to topple governments. That seems wrong. Did he give the orders or did he know about them? Yeah, well, he's president. He knew about them. He didn't stop it. But then I do want to give American to the person in charge of the European theatre of war in World War II. Mm. I do want to give American can to the US president who kept saying no to using nukes. Yeah. I do want to give an American to the president who managed to weather the storms of McCarthyism. See, there's more of that than there is the negative. There is. There is. And I suppose we gave American to some presidents early on who I had some big misgivings uh, yes. with. For example, Jefferson's got American and I really could not get on with him. Uh you're saying yes, you're definite yes, aren't you? Yeah, I'm definitely yes. Right, in which case I will bow down to your judgment. If you were, weren't sure either, I'd say we would have to ask Jupiter and toss the coin. But uh, yeah. if you're saying yes... <laughs> well, if you're saying yes and I'm saying I'm not sure, let's uh, take an average, and that puts him just in the yes camp, yeah. which means he is an American. Yeah. Well done to Eisenhower. Well done. That is annoying we now have a perfectly joint fourth but uh i'm sure we can think of something to separate the two yeah yeah definitely Their teeth who had the most real teeth yes we could do that yeah <laughs> here's one who had the most slaves <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah 
Okay, well, thank you very much for listening. Yep. Uh, and also, thank you very much for everyone who has joined our Senate. There's a huge number of people who have joined our Senate. We are overwhelmed with the amount of support that you guys are giving us. Uh, and linked to that, uh, there's a couple of things that we want to just to make clear, maybe that we've not managed to so far. Uh, number one is if you join our Senate through Patreon, you have access to all of our um, Founding Fathers episodes, and Hamilton Part 1 is up, but also all of our back catalogue of the Roman Republics, which are steadily being put up uh, as well, and a new mystery podcast called The Fourth Week, where uh, Jamie and I, every fourth week, will just record something maybe small, maybe it'll be longer. Uh, Jamie's editing, yeah? Aren't yeah. Jamie? I did yeah. my first editing the other day. It's very yeah, scary. That's... And... Uh, and it's it's just it's more informal chat. We might have guests on to have a chat and play a game. We might uh, we might rate whiskey. Uh, we might might finally do a Star Trek episode. Yes. Um, it's yeah. There's yeah. it's a lot lot freer, a lot more fun, and you will have access to that also if you join our Patreon, which is great. You also on top of that, there's so much. You also will have access to our Discord server. Yes. Yes, where loads of people on there right now are, are chatting away. I. I even edited the last Roman episode whilst live on the Discord server, <laughs> chatting to people to stop me from being too bored because uh, editing is a long process at times. <laughs> so, yeah, that was fun. Um, so uh, sign up to our Patreon um, and you will have access to all of those things. And thank you very much if you already have. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for downloads on Podbean, iTunes and wherever else you can download us from. Yes. Okay, so thank you very much for listening and all we need to say is... Goodbye. Goodbye. But I have a solution, sir. Right, well, I'm, I'm going to stop you there before you, before you tell me what your solution is for this particular problem. Uh, One question I'm going to ask. Is it dropping a nuke on it? It is. Right. Yes. yes, I thought I had made myself clear on the whole, we're not dropping nukes on things. This time it's not like before. It's a different kind of nuke. Oh, so so this this is different then? Yes, this one's a tactical nuclear warhead. Oh, well, okay, that does sound better. Yes, it does sound better, doesn't it, sir? Is there any actual tangible difference between a nuke and a tactical nuke? Oh, massive difference, massive oh, good, difference. Good. What, what is, uh, in layman, layman terms, please, what, what is the difference? Well, have you ever dropped a, a grape into a swimming pool? Uh, no, but I can imagine, go on. Okay, so those ripples would be the equivalent of a nuclear warhead. Right. The tactical warhead is like dropping a bowling ball onto a teacup. Full of tea, sir. Yes, you're you're not winning me over with this. I'm, it must be said. What you're saying is that it is a, uh, it is, actually bigger. Oh, far bigger, sir. It's unbelievable. Right. Okay. Um. Well, I'm going to say no, oh. not because I don't value your input. I just think, I really don't think dropping a tactical nuclear warhead over your ex-wife's house, is is really something the government of the United States needs to focus on right now. I really think it is, sir.
Yes, I really, really think it is. I know it is, Gerald. Uh, Simon, 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 can you take Gerald away, please? <laughs> yes. Take take some time off, Gerald. 